and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In sports, you're only as good or happy as your most recent play or game or season. You may have won the World Series three years ago, but now you're fired. Fortunately, that's not how the gospel economy works. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this sermon entitled, To Live is Christ and to Die is Gain which covers Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, welcome to Perimeter Church. We're glad you're with us. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians. This is a book in the New Testament. We'll be looking at chapter 1. Uh, for once, they gave me a standalone, and you're not getting some obscure Old Testament passage. We're going to be in the New Testament this time. And, and I love this book. And the book of Philippians is this book where you have these two seemingly irreconcilable, incompatible themes that Paul says come together perfectly in Jesus. These themes where on the one hand you have this joy, this effusive, overwhelming, amazing joy. But then on the other, the reality of deep, deep suffering. And Paul, even as he's writing this letter, Paul is a man whose life, whose life has been impacted by both of those themes. And what he offers to us this morning, this is something that I think it is absolutely vital that we as the church grab a hold of. Because if the gospel is to be compelling, if the church is to be a light in the midst of darkness. That comes not when the church is financially prosperous or politically powerful or numerically superior. Rather, that comes when the people of God have been so transformed by the gospel of Jesus that even suffering becomes something beautiful. And here's what Paul says, starting in the second half of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, my imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we come into this text that Lord, you would give us eyes and ears and hearts to behold beautiful things. That Lord, you would show us your son and all of his beauty and all of his goodness and his full sufficiency and you would take our wandering hearts and you would bind them to your own. We pray you would do this now through the power of your spirit and in the name of your son. Amen. I'm not much of a baseball fan, but every once in a while, there's something that will happen in the baseball world that'll catch my eye. And the World Series in 2016 was one of those things. 
Because you had, not teams that I was particularly interested in, but you had this battle between two teams that were perennial underdogs, teams that had gone a combined 176 years without a title. On the one hand, you had the Chicago Cubs, this team that had waited for 108 years to even sniff the chance at a World Series again. And then on the other, you had a team in the Cleveland Indians who maybe had a title a little more recently, but it had still been 68 long years. And in that World Series, when the last pitch was thrown, the last bat was swung, and Chicago claimed that title for the first time in 108 years, Chicago, this city that had waited for so long for that title, that city exploded with this effusive, overwhelming joy. People were running into the streets, they were dancing, they were laughing, fireworks were exploding. The Chicago Sun-Times had as their headline, there's joy in Wrigleyville. And all that joy, the joy of this city, this city just overwhelmed that finally this thing they longed for, it was theirs. All of that joy was personified in the face, at least in the news, of one man. A man who's more famous for his movies than he is for being a Chicago Cubs fan. A man you may have heard of called Bill Murray. And all through the news, there were pictures of Bill Murray. Bill Murray with his arms out like this and his eyes closed and his head tilted back, screaming for joy. Bill Murray taking two things of champagne and pouring them on the head of the president of the Chicago Cubs. Bill Murray looking not like a 70-year-old man, but a drunken frat guy hanging on all the baseball players and singing and interviewing them and jumping up and down. And if you typed in just three words into Google the week after the World Series, Chicago Cubs joy, the first four articles and the first four images were all Bill Murray. He was the picture of Chicago. You know, that, that joy, that's a joy we crave. You know, that's a joy that last night watching the college football playoffs, it's a, it's a joy, if I'm honest, I really want my Georgia Bulldogs to someday have. It's been 40 years, I mean, it's been a while. But here's what strikes me, that joy it's a fleeting joy, isn't it? I mean, it's only been three years. And even if you're a Chicago Cubs or a Cleveland Indians fan, the memory of that World Series, it's already faded, hasn't it? You know, joy, joy in this life is a fragile thing. It's this thing that we get these little tastes of. We get just the tiniest bit of it on our tongue, and then no sooner do we get it than we find ourselves realizing we need infinitely more, and already at that moment, it's gone. It's something that can be stolen. It's something that can be taken from us. It is something that we are chasing with every single thing that we possess. And even when we find it, we always find ourselves saying the same thing. We find ourselves saying what Tom Brady did in that famous interview where after winning yet another Super Bowl, he looked at the reporter and said, there has to be something more. There has to be a joy that's better than this. This is what makes what Paul says here so compelling. Because the joy that Paul speaks of, this isn't a joy that's determined by your circumstances. This is a joy that transforms your circumstances. Paul, Paul's not sitting on top of the world. He hasn't just won a national title or a World Series championship. He's, 
not sitting on top of a pile of money, and he's not swimming in the adulation of crowds of people. Paul, Paul's in prison. Paul is sitting in a cell, and he is chained to another man, and he does not know if he is going to live or if he is going to die. And Paul, this man who has given his whole life for the church, this man who has followed Jesus to the ends of the earth, this man who has served, enslaved, and given his life away that others would know Jesus, this man is sitting there and hearing news that there are people who are preaching the gospel not because they want Jesus to look good, but because they want Paul to look bad. He's a man who is sitting in a place where it looks as though he has absolutely nothing left. And yet Paul says, and I will rejoice. Why? Because Paul says, my hope, my hope isn't grounded in my circumstances. My hope is grounded in a person. My hope is found in Jesus and Jesus alone and to live, to live as Christ. He is my past, he is my present, he is my future, he is my everything, and he is one whose grace is so powerful, he takes even death and he makes it gain. And so even now in prison and in chains, I rejoice. And here is the hope of the gospel that Paul extends to us in this text. That joy, that's the joy that is offered to you and to me in Jesus Christ. So that we would say with Paul, no matter what our circumstances, I rejoice because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a joy grounded first in Christ's vindication. In verse 19, Paul says this interesting thing. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, just sit on that for a second. When we think of vindication, When we think of deliverance, this is not what we typically think of, is it? You know, when when I envision deliverance, I think of prison doors being opened. I think of pardons being issued. I picture a team that's down three in the fourth quarter and the quarterback throwing a pass to the back corner of the end zone to win the game. I think of Gandalf bathed in light and leading an army down the side of a mountain to save his friends at the Battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings which if you don't think of that, it's because I'm a nerd. (laughs) Paul, Paul has an entirely different conception of deliverance. Paul says, even if the prison doors don't open, even if they open and the person who walks through, it is a man with a black hood and a sword in his hand who is there to tell me that my life, it is over. Even if that happens, this I know to be true. I will be delivered because I'm in Jesus. You know, the past few elections, one of the most contentious issues that has been tossed around by both sides is this question of who gets to decide Supreme Court justices. You might be a liberal, you might be conservative, you might be anywhere in the political spectrum, but every single person, we are concerned about that one thing because we know this, that whoever is sitting in those seats 
Whoever's wearing those robes, they are the ones who have the final say on what the law actually means. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if every single lower court came to a certain decision. If the Supreme Court, if they decide something different, theirs is the word that counts. You could go to the court after court after court and everyone could say exactly the same thing, but the Supreme Court, theirs is the only voice that actually matters. Paul says, I have access to a higher court. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. That phrase should catch your attention. It would have caught the attention of Paul's original audience because that phrase is a direct word-for-word quote of the Greek translation of Job 13, verse 16, a translation that Paul's audience would have been intimately familiar with. You know, Paul, Paul's a guy who all his life growing up, he kind of slow-cooked in the story of the Old Testament. All the promises of God, all the the things that God has done for his people, Paul, he has imbibed these, dreamt about these, slept on these, meditated on these, and now, having seen Jesus, he's realized that that whole story, everything that God said, all of it has come to a point, a climax, in Jesus Christ, and he is looking back and he's saying, this is about him, and you see him do it right here. Because here's the context of Job 13, verse 16. Job... Job is a man just like Paul who is suffering unjustly. He's a man who's been stripped of everything that you would look at and say, that is what is precious and that is what is good. He's a man who's lost his family, his livelihood, his future. He's a man who is in pain. And not only that, he's a man who in that chapter has friends who have come not to his aid, but to tell him that the reason he's suffering The reason he's in pain is because there must be some sin in his life he hasn't confessed. Because why else would God let something like that happen to him? Friends, not unlike the ones that Paul spoke of, who were preaching the gospel not because they want to make Christ look great, but because they want Paul to look bad. And Job Job's response is this, verse 15. Though God slay me, even if he kills me, I will hope in him. I will argue my ways to his face. I will stand in his courtroom and I will make my case. This will be my salvation, my deliverance, that the godless shall not come before him. Job says, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. I know one. I know one who sits in heaven and his is the only verdict that matters. And my hope is this. He hears my voice because I am his own. The godless can't come into his presence. But God's people, they can. And Paul Paul says that's the hope that we have in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we don't just have access to a higher court. In Jesus, in Jesus, we have the confidence of those who know that the judgment has already been rendered. Because in Jesus, 
even if we are justly condemned, even if we know that we deserve death and we deserve hell, even if all that is true, in Jesus we have one who has borne in his body every single one of our sins so that we would be presented as pure and blameless before our Father in heaven. In Jesus, when the Father raised him from death into life, it was as though the Father took the judge's gavel and he slammed it down and he said, you, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought, no matter where you've been, no matter who you think you are, who the world says you are, if you were in Jesus, then you were forgiven. And I look at you and I see not your sin and not your brokenness, I see the perfection of my own son. Paul says this is joy. It's to know that no matter what the world says, no matter what the world does, no matter what we say about ourselves, there is one in Jesus who has spoken a better word and his is the word that counts. This is the joy of a Christian. It's that when Satan whispers in your ear that if people only knew what was in your mind and in your heart, that they would not love you, but they would hate you, and not only would they reject you, but God would too. It's that when your conscience, it is screaming out to you that you are not good enough, that you are defined by your failures. It's in those moments that you and I who are in Christ, we get to respond in the way that Martin Luther did. When he said this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the world says, and it doesn't matter what the world does, and it doesn't matter what you say about yourself. The joy of a Christian, it is not in what you have done. It is in what the Son of God has done for you. He is your vindication. He's your deliverer. But Paul, Paul doesn't just rejoice because he knows Christ's vindication. He rejoices because he knows Christ's supply. In the very same verses, Paul says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He goes on later in verse 20, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, no matter what happens, no matter how much is taken from me, even if death comes, I know this, I have one in Jesus who is sufficient for my every single need. I know one who has provided for me, supplied me with everything that I require, and I see it in two ways. One, I see you praying for him, but two, I know this, the people of God, they are lifting me up, but God, he has been faithful to his promise and he has given me his spirit. You know, this is a radically counterintuitive idea. You know, we typically think that the place where we experience the presence and the goodness of God, 
the most is in those places where suffering is least. We typically think that the place where we are safe and secure, it is in those places where we feel the most competent and we feel the most in control. I want you to notice what Paul is saying. He says, no, the place where you experience the goodness and the grace and the tenderness of God the most, it's not in the places where you are strongest and it's not in the places where suffering is least. It's in the places where your suffering is greatest and your weakness is most acutely felt. Because what you find there, it is a God who is sufficient for every single one of your needs, who takes even the things that Satan would use to drive you from your Savior's arms, and he turns those very weapons of the evil one, and he uses them to bless his own. And Paul, Paul's not speaking as someone who doesn't understand these things. He's not speaking in abstractions. Paul, he's speaking of, as one who knows and has experienced all of this in his own life and in his own body. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I've known suffering. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times I was on ships that they went down to the bottom, but somehow I escaped five times. I received the 40 lashes minus one, which if you've ever wondered why they give you 39 lashes and not 40, it's because they believe that if they crossed that line, you died five times. Five times Paul is beaten to the point where they think he is on the brink of death. Jesus only experienced that once. Three times, Paul says, I was beaten with rods. Also unpleasant, if you've ever tried that. Three times. I was stoned, which means they took me out of the city and they threw rocks at my head until they thought it had caved in enough that I must be dead. And then, somehow, mysteriously, Paul, three times, gets back up. On one occasion, we know he went back into the city and preached the gospel again. You can't put this man down. He's been robbed, he's been beaten, He's been starved, he's been cold, and yet Paul says in every single one of these places, in all of these circumstances, I have discovered this, Jesus is sufficient for me. His power is not made perfect in my strength, it is made perfect in my weakness. And he reveals his glory in the very places where I feel most inadequate and most alone. You know, we have this conception sometimes that Jesus, he saves us. He died, he rose again, he's ascended to heaven, but then he just kind of leaves us to grit our way through the rest of his life. That period between his ascension and then us eventually seeing him face to face in a new heavens and a new earth. Everything in between, we just got to kind of endure it. Paul, Paul says that's not... That's not the way it works at all. And Paul, Paul says that not because he's decided it in his own mind. He says that because that's what Jesus promised was the case. Because who's Jesus? 
Jesus is the one who didn't just give his life for his people. Jesus is the one who gives his very spirit to his people. In John 14, Jesus knows that his death is coming. And he knows that he's going to be leaving his disciples behind and that they're not going to understand and they're going to feel abandoned. And so Jesus, Jesus speaks a word of comfort to his disciples and a word of comfort to you and me today. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Notice the similarity to verse 19. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We may be abandoned by every person that we love. We may find ourselves in places where we feel so weak that we cannot imagine how we would continue, and yet here is the promise of Jesus. In those moments, you are never truly alone. And while you are powerless, you are in the hands of one who has all power in heaven and on earth and who has promised even in those moments to grant that power to you through his spirit. And it is a supply so great, so great, that Paul says he turns even death into gain. You know, if a man walked into Paul's cell with a sword in his hand and told him that this is the end, what is he actually going to do to Paul? What's he going to do? He's not going to send him into a world without God. He's not going to render a judgment on him that's final. He has one who is his vindication. What's he going to do? He's going to send Paul out of a world where he knows his Savior in part and into one where he knows him in full. He's going to send him out of a world where the realities of pain and sin and suffering and death, those are things that are still waiting to be healed. And he's going to send him into the arms of the one through whom that healing will finally come into the arms of one that Paul sees as so precious. He says that to live, to breathe, to walk, to do anything, it is Christ Jesus. Paul says, what are you going to do to me? Even your greatest weapons, Jesus, he turns them on their head. Jesus takes even the things that would drive God's people from his arms and he turns those into a means of grace that pushes us even deeper into the embrace of our Savior so that we would know more and more and more of his provision. And can you imagine just for a second how stinking frustrated Satan must be? All of your effort, all of your energy, all of it expended with this one end. You want to rebel against the God who made you, informed you, and you want to thwart his plan and hurt his people. And yet, what does God do at every turn? He turns your curses into his blessings. He takes what Satan would use for evil and God, God intends it for good. You know, one of my favorite lines from Milton's Paradise Lost, a book that full confession here. I've only read the first part of it, not the rest. So before you think too highly of me, didn't finish it, but I got this line. There's this great line in Milton's Paradise Lost where Satan, he has been cast from heaven 
and he is raging against God. He's shaking his fist at the heavens and he's saying, I will do whatever it takes to bring you down. I will fight your people. I will fight your kingdom. I will hurt your sheep. I will make them feel my wrath. It is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. But then at the very end, after this long monologue about how hard he's going to fight and how much he hates the God who sits in heaven, Satan in the end, he says this, but for all my malice, Despite all my hate, despite all my strength, despite all my raging, in the end, it will only serve to bring infinite goodness, grace, and kindness to God's people through Christ Jesus. Satan is like a little kid trying to attack his dad and being held at arm's length. He has nothing. Paul says, this is where joy is found. It's knowing that in Christ you have your vindication and in Christ you have one who supplies your every need. But not only that, you have one whose purposes are never, ever thwarted no matter what your circumstances. It's a joy grounded in Christ's purposes. He says in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You want to know what it means to say that to live is Christ? Paul says, here's, here's your answer. It's to know that if there is breath in your lungs, if there is a beat to your heart, then no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how broken, how weak you may be, the purpose of Jesus Christ will not be thwarted in you. And if you remain here, as he says in this text, there is still fruitful labor for you. Paul says, even my chains have served to expand the gospel. Satan, Satan wanted to shut Paul up, and so he threw him in prison. And yet, what happens when Paul's in prison? Paul suddenly finds he has a whole new avenue for doing ministry. Because now he's not chasing people down. People are chained to him, and they have to listen. He's like that person you got stuck next to on the airplane that you kept hinting at with your headphones and your book, like, please leave me alone. But there's no bathroom to escape to. There's no way to hide. Paul, he is stuck, chained to you, and he has one mission. He wants to talk about Jesus all day. Paul says, they wanted to shut me up, and all they did was give me another opportunity to proclaim Jesus. Satan thought he had cornered off the apostle of God. Well, guess what God did? He gave him access to the imperial guard, which means he has access even to the emperor himself. Your move, Satan. You know, we, we have, and I, I confess, this is me too, this terrible misconception of how God works. We think, we think that if only things get to be a certain way, if only our circumstances are right, that only then will we be able to fruitfully labor for the kingdom of God. But you know, if 
if I can only get through seminary and I can just learn enough, if I can only get on my, the ground at a church where I'm serving and get ordained, then, then I'll be ready to do ministry. If only, if only my wife and I have a little more time and our kids are not so small so that we're not always pulling our hair out because we never sleep. If only, if only there wasn't that sin that keeps cropping up its head in my life. If only I could beat this thing. If only my life could look this way. Then, then I would be useful for the kingdom of God. And then I would fulfill Christ's purposes. And I want you to hear this for what it is. If that is what you think, and I have to confess it's what I've often thought, then what you have believed, it may be a gospel, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is a gospel that depends on you and your sufficiency and your strength and not the one who is your supply and your vindication. Paul says, if there's breath in your lungs, if there's a beat to your heart, it doesn't matter if all your days are spent with eight kids holding onto your heels. It doesn't matter if you are strapped to a hospital bed and you don't know if you're ever going to get out. It doesn't matter if you have the world's worst job. Christ's purposes will not be thwarted and he has you exactly where you are at this exact moment that you would labor fruitfully for him. You're not there by accident. You're there in the same way that Paul is in chains because Jesus wants you there. And Jesus, nothing thwarts Jesus. He has placed you there that just like Paul, you would proclaim a Jesus who makes even suffering beautiful because you have found a joy that doesn't fade but endures. A joy not rooted in circumstances but rooted in a person. I'll close with this. In the 1970s, a man named Pol Pot came to power in the country of Cambodia. And in the space of five years, he massacred over two million people. To put that in perspective, in a country of eight million people, that means one out of every four people died. If you did that in the United States, that would be 62 million people. That's not the kind of experience you walk away from unscathed. That means there's nobody in that country who has not felt the weight of that act, the evil of what that man did. But maybe no one experienced that pain more acutely than the church. Because of the 10,000 Christians that were in Cambodia when Pol Pot took power, do you know how many survived his five-year reign? 200. That's a mortality rate of 98%. That means if this is the church, that little corner walked away. A few years ago, I met one of the 200, a guy who in the space of five years watched as his entire world came undone, a guy who would come to Christ, who had seen his family come to Christ, 
But then watch in the course of those years as first his brother and sister were killed because of their faith in Jesus. But then the man who led him to Christ and discipled him, he watched that man led away in chains to a labor camp where he too died because of the name of Jesus. And this man, he was arrested and he was put in one of those camps, but somehow by the slimmest of hairs, he survived. And you know, when I I think about it, if ever there was someone who you might say, you know, maybe they have some right to be bitter with God. Your family, your friends, the church you were a part of, it's gone. It might have been him. And yet in the one time that I spoke with this man, what I saw, it wasn't bitterness. It wasn't frustration. It was joy. Effusive, overflowing, enduring joy. Because he found, he found what Paul did in Jesus That in Jesus there was one who spoke a better word, not only over him, but over all of his friends and family who had died than Pol Pot ever could. And that word, that was the one that counted. In Jesus, he had one who though all the circumstances were wrong and everything seemed lost and everything was broken and he had nothing that he could look to in an earthly way and say, this will sustain me. He saw in Jesus one who supplied his every need even in that time. And he found one in Jesus who even when the arm of the state had lifted against God's people in such a tangible way, he found one in Jesus whose purposes were never, ever thwarted. And for 40 years... That man ministered in Cambodia and proclaimed the gospel. And as far as I know, he's doing it still. That's the joy. That's the joy that Paul offers us in Jesus. Where are you looking for your joy this morning? Is it in things that fade? Those fleeting joys that are here one moment and then gone the next? Or is it in the one who gives you a joy that is untouchable, a joy that cannot be stolen and cannot be broken, a joy that doesn't fade but endures, the one who not only entered into death for you but has been resurrected into new life and who offers you the same, who takes even death and makes it gain. Such gain that Paul says it's actually far better to go. May God, may he so move in our midst, may he bring the gospel to bear on us in such a way that no matter what our circumstances, even if everything is falling apart, we would say with Paul, yes, and I will rejoice. Because to us, to live as Christ, and to die, to die as gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, Lord, that in you we have one who has provided so abundantly for every one of our needs. You are a God who ministers to your people, who cares for us in our brokenness. And Lord, you are the one. You are the one who even now holds us fast and gives us this hope. Ground us in yourself. And may we be a people May we be a people so impacted by the gospel that, Lord, we take even suffering, even the things 
that look as though they have defeated your people and your kingdom, Lord, where you take even those things, and Lord, I pray that through us, you would make them beautiful because we would be those who say we rejoice in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.